Hello and welcome to the Free Movement Podcast. I'm CJ McKinney. We thought we'd do something a bit different with this episode because this is my last day at Free Movement. Uh, very sadly, I'm moving on after five really enjoyable years working with Colin. So what we thought we'd do with this is take a step back and look at what's happened in UK immigration law and policy over those five years since 2017. Um, it's been a pretty action-packed period, Brexit, uh, quote-unquote new points-based immigration system. We've had the Windrush scandal and more recently thousands of refugees crossing the channel by boat. Uh, and we'll discuss all those topics today. Joining me are Nicola Carter of Carter Thomas Listers, Peter William Walsh of the Migration Observatory at Oxford University, and Colin Yeo of Garden Court Chambers and of course Free Movement. And I started by asking each of them what they think is a major change or theme affecting the UK immigration system in the last five years. And as Colin has written the book all about this, we'll start with him. I, th- I think the standout thing for me about the last few years is basically the implosion of the asylum system, sort of as we knew it previously. And um, you know, the, the big standout feature within that is the massive backlog that's built up over the last four or five years where it's gone up from, I, I haven't got the numbers immediately in front of me, from around 20,000 for a fairly long period, 20,000 outstanding cases to, uh, so we're looking at 90, 100,000 cases at the moment, according to the latest stats. That's a massive problem because those people are not allowed to work. Um, they're therefore kept on asylum support, which is um, sort of destitution level, essentially. They're put into hotels or camps or contracted, sometimes quite squalid accommodation. And it's terrible for them. You know, their lives are on hold for really prolonged periods, um, years, we think, at the moment. And it's really expensive. Um, it costs the, the Home Office a small fortune. They put out a press release um, back in April saying it's like 4.7 million per day. That the acceptance rate has gone up at the same over the same period, and I don't think there's any kind of causal link between those things. You know, you might think, oh well, they're taking longer to think about these things a bit more seriously, or something like that. I, I don't think that's actually what's going on, but certainly we've seen the acceptance rate for refugee for, for refugee claims really go up over that period to the point that it's at seventy five percent for initial decisions. And then, you know, more people are winning on appeal. And the the appeal success rate, which has stayed persistently high, even as the initial grant rate has gone up, which is a bit of a mystery as well, that's about 50%. It may may dip a little bit as more cases come through. We don't know. You know, the vast majority of these people are genuine refugees. They're going to be here long term. They're going to be part of our society. Why are we treating them in this really awful way for such protracted periods of time? And that that is just, I think, a kind of real disaster area. So that's my that's my big standout feature. Nicola, asylum's not necessarily your area, but what about the more business side of things? I mean, certainly from my point of view, yeah, it's it's going to be it's the impact um, of Brexit on businesses in particular um, and universities and so on. That's that's got to be the standout sort of uh, issue for the majority of um, of non-asylum practitioners. And I think for me, the first time that I realised. And it sounds kind of trivial, you know, in the big scheme of what's going on, you read all of the legislation and you keep up to date with everything. But it's when you get a phone call. So in my case, got a phone call from a German doctor and he had he was stuck at, uh, I think, Heathrow, struggling to get in because he'd been coming in and out for several years to attend a private clinic in Harley Street. And, And this was the first time that he'd actually even been asked about what he was coming in for uh, and was denied entry because obviously he said, well, I'm coming in to 
attend my private clinic in Harley Street. Uh, and, and, and that for me, I think, was the big sort of moment where you suddenly realise how many people in the EU, we'd all been focused very much on people coming in for long term assignments, moving over here for for their lives. Um, but actually, there's so many individuals, I think, just caught up now in, in this uh, in these odd scenarios, which don't necessarily lend themselves very well to um, sponsorship or, or the other routes in the system. Peter, what's your standout theme or issue? So just to say, uh, first of all, it's a real privilege uh, to be on this podcast with you. We use your blog all the time, and we find it a fantastically uh, useful resource. So it's a real pleasure to be here. Thanks very much for inviting me. Um, For us at the observatory, I think what we've detected is really a quite profound shift in the immigration debate. And that's been from a debate that was all about the numbers, specifically getting net migration down, to a debate that's based on predominantly the government's view that migrants are, and to use a shorthand, either good or bad. Now, that's a theme that we've seen previously before in the UK. It's seen in other countries. It's not new. It's well known to researchers. And within this numerical debate, we know net migration, that was the great symbol of that. But it was reflected in government policy everywhere from 2010 onwards, when the approach was essentially to restrict everything. If there was a category of immigration, let's try and restrict it. Skilled work, we'll restrict that. Student migration, restrict that. Family migration. And now under Johnson, the debate has become more fragmented. It focuses on different categories of migrants. And then within within each category, we can distinguish between those that are good and those that are bad. So within work, we have high-skilled migrants, good. Low-skilled migrants, bad. Within channel crossers, well, female channel crossers are okay. Male channel crossers, the men there elbowing women and children out of the way. With regard to refugees, we've got Ukrainian refugees, Hong Kongers. They're deserving of preferential treatment in some way above other people seeking protection. And then I think really this dichotomy of the good migrant and the bad migrant, it's really epitomized by um, what we see in the Nationality and Borders Act uh, and the policy regarding Group 1 and Group 2 refugees. Do you think that shift from the focus on raw numbers, the the 100,000 net migration target under David Cameron, the shift away from that has anything to do with Brexit? This idea that now we have control over who comes in, who doesn't? Hmm. Brexit may have played a role. I mean, you'll recall there were always competing schools of thought within the Leave camp. There were some that argued that Brexit was an opportunity to reduce overall numbers. And then there were others that argued that actually it wasn't the total headline figure that was the big issue, but rather our ability to select. Um, But there is also, I think, um, a longer term trend of lower concern about migration more generally, and there are more positive public attitudes. And we see this when we look at surveys, where people over the last few years, they've been increasingly likely to say that they think migrants have a positive impact on culture or the economy. And it could be the case that lower political concern about numbers may, to some extent, be a reflection of that. But I think we also need to wait and see. Uh, because very much this will depend on where migration levels actually settle down in the coming years. And so far, 
at present we have very few usable migration statistics and it's actually not entirely clear how much lower migration is going to be as a result of Brexit if at all uh, so really for me when we start getting proper national statistics we'll see whether migration has actually fallen and then whether politicians start to feel more pressure again to reduce numbers. It's interesting that you say we, we don't have proper statistics. Can, can you maybe tease that out? Because there, there has been this media narrative just in the last few months saying, hey, immigration is up since Brexit. Um, is that, do we not actually know that for sure? Because people seem pretty, pretty certain that that's the case. No, we don't. So it, I think this bears repeating. There are currently no decent statistics that can be used to compare immigration pre-pandemic with migration under the post-Brexit immigration system. And that's because, in large part, COVID uh, infected not only us, but immigration statistics. And we know that it hastened the demise of the International Passenger Survey conducted at airports and seaports, on which we, for the longest time, based our long-term international migration estimates. Now, we do have some data Uh, And that's home office administrative data. That's the only source that exists for both pre and post pandemic. And that kind of gives us a rough indication that immigration's been a bit lower recently. The narrative that immigration is now really high, well, that comes from people who have looked only at data for non-EU citizens. And there, the numbers have gone up for sure. It's a more liberal work system now for non-EU citizens. We see that in visa issuances. The visa data we have, it suggests that EU migration is pretty low, and we can compare that with some somewhat, um, not particularly robust estimates uh, based on ONS modelling. I mean, they showed for the most recent period net emigration of EU citizens, and that's why it's not entirely clear that overall migration is higher now than a few years ago. If I had to guess, my guess would be that it's a little bit lower but all this can change over time and we don't yet have any decent figures for what's going on right now in 2022 okay but best guess is that non-eu immigration seems up eu seems down and so that sort of balances out nicola let me ask you about brexit and students because i know that's a particular interest of yours i read recently there has been a 93 percent decline in european students applying to uk universities post-Brexit and the EU has been overtaken by China as a source of overseas students and, and the fees obviously that come with that which are very important to unis. Does that mean like universities are actually doing okay for foreign students in the round? It's just the mix of countries they come from that, that has changed? I mean it's it's interesting Obviously, we do have, um, I think, pretty reliable stats, one would hope, from the Home Office on the amount of visas they've actually granted. And they've shown that, you know, this year's study visas or the year ending March 2022, study visas are around about 460,000. And that's uh, 52% higher than the previous record, which was set in 2010, of 307,000. Um, and, and that aligns with the government's current uh, ambition to significantly increase international student numbers, um, which is very different to where we found ourselves in 2012, 13, etc., when uh, we were the education system, education sector uh, was under attack um, from the uh, Home Office over bogus colleges and uh, and so on. 
so so it's you know th- there's a huge increase uh, china's leading the way followed uh, by closely by india uh, and then nigeria pakistan and, and the united states um, and the eu students making up about 5% i think of the number at the moment what from our point of view we are continuing to deal with a lot of um, compliance work from universities which is really my sort of special specialism within the specialism um and we're finding that I mean, the, what I would say without going into too much detail is I think uh, universities on the whole need to be re-looking, uh, reviewing their uh, compliance measures um, just to make sure things don't get too relaxed uh, and then institutions find themselves suddenly at risk of, uh, of having their sponsor licence uh, either, uh, well, looked at, scrutinised closely, shall we say. Yeah, well, the sector hasn't fallen over uh, despite Brexit. So that's uh, that's one good thing. Um, Brexit obviously has a huge impact on people who are already here, and the EU settlement scheme opened in early 2019 for EU citizens to apply for permission to stay uh, after Brexit. And since then, 5.8 million individuals have applied, and over 90% of applications have been accepted. Peter, uh, is it a roaring success, the settlement scheme? What do you at the observatory think? Well, I think credit where credit's due. Um, in a number of important respects, the scheme has been pretty successful. I mean, that's especially when you consider the scale of the challenge, processing you know, applications from millions of people over just a few years. And the government has made some strides here. I mean, the application, it's dramatically less onerous than your average home office immigration application. There's been a fair amount of investment from the government and millions of applications have been processed for the most part successfully. I mean, there have been some issues. There are many vulnerable groups who struggle with the applications, even now, though, they've been simplified. There are those who have lived in poverty or have very limited English. They've struggled to engage with the system. I mean, we know this because hundreds of thousands of people missed the deadline, as my colleagues at the Migration Observatory predicted. I think there are probably some, maybe three big issues that remain. Um, So we're looking at this onto the horizon. The first is that as in the asylum system, there's a pretty hefty backlog of applicants who have waited months or in some cases more than a year for a decision. There's also roughly 2 million people, if memory serves, who have been granted the temporary pre-settled status and they'll have to apply again to stay here permanently. Uh, And there are real questions about whether they realise they have to do that because if they don't do that, they will lose their status, at least under current rules. So there's real uncertainty there. And then I suppose, finally, there's this longer term question about whether people will be able to uh, use to access the digital status they're now getting. Because as we know, the Home Office has resisted giving any sort of physical document. So there are real questions about how that will work as well. Yeah, the Home Office came out just this week with a plan for 
the next few years and it included this idea of digital by default. Uh, so I don't think uh, they are going to be going back to giving people physical residence documents anytime soon, which which EU citizens may be upset by. Um, Nicola, can I just bring you back to the point Peter made about the settlement scheme being dramatically less onerous than your typical immigration process. Um, is that your experience? Like your German doctors and stuff who are contacting you, have they been able to go through it fairly easily? Certainly, the vast majority, I think, were able to people were able to apply, you know, on their smartphone without um, any any concerns at all. I, I do have a niggling concern that it was so easy that perhaps some applications, many applications, went in without actually having fully met the requirements. Uh, and my concern there is if that uh, becomes difficult when people do apply under, so if they've had pre-settled status, if they then apply for settled status and then British citizenship. So things like, you know, time spent in the UK, absences and so on, uh, whether or not the UK was their main uh, place of residence, all these things were fairly light touch. And and, and that, you know, the Home Office deliberately designed a, a, um, a system that was light touch at the time, which was needed, I think, from a headline point of view particularly, and also to make sure that they were able to get you know, those vast volumes of people through the system. Um, but as I say, I have a niggling doubt that there could be future complications when we get to the three, four, five-year point. Possible trouble stored up for the future, we will see. Well, you know, obviously we had Brexit, we moved into what the government uh, described persistently as a, a new points-based immigration system, um, Australian style, sometimes it was described as, um, and there were a number of changes to the visa system. But like fundamentally, there's nothing new about work visas since Brexit. Like obviously EU citizens have to use it to get visas and, and some of the specific rules have changed which we'll come on to but like the basic architecture as i see it is the same you've got employer sponsorship in most cases a few unsponsored visas for really clever or rich people um various temporary and specialist schemes that are sort of uh, a bit niche uh, and student visas are kind of the same as they always were what do you think nicola I'd agree. Um, in short, it, it was really a rebranding exercise um, to, to sort of launch a new post-Brexit um, system, but actually um, very little change in terms of the the mechanism, uh, not the mechanism, actually, that's the wrong word, in terms of the kind of key routes, obviously, as you say, within those routes, there were tweaks. What is interesting, though, and what we've certainly seen and what we will continue to see is this move towards digitalization, And that's where within the route you've mentioned, of concern, I think, from my perspective and a lot of practitioners as well, is this move towards the home office computer system, giving a green light um, to, you know, lots and lots of individuals, which is is great. But when the system gives you uh, uh, an amber or red light in your application, we, we need to push for more and more clarity on why because they're being very, very um, quiet, shall we say, um, about the triggers um, for, for those different treatment of people. And I think that's something we all need to keep an eye on and be really concerned about. Yeah, I think Joe Tomlinson and some other academics have been trying to beat the drum on this, that there needs to be transparency in how the algorithms work um, and how the, digi- how the home office computer actually yep. makes its decisions, as you say. So that, I think you're right, that will be important in the future. Um, I was looking back um, at the what has changed in the work visa system since I started. And, you know, as I say, the, the 
basics aren't the same, but there's been a lot of churn in the individual routes. So like when I started, you had an investor visa, an entrepreneur visa. They're both gone. You've had changes and rebrands to what was tier two general is now skilled worker. Intercompany transfer is now global business mobility. Uh, exceptional talent is now global talent. And now you've got new routes, or at least routes brought back that had been scrapped and um, the graduate route um, seasonal worker uh, and I think genuinely knew the high potential visa so if, if you had been in cryogenic stasis since 2017 you, you would have quite a, a lot of catching up to do and, and immigration law as we know changes all the time. From my personal point of view um, uh, you know the sort of coal face of the business end the removal of the entrepreneur route um, and uh, you know we, we now have almost no functioning route for business biz, for business owners to come to the UK. We can try and fit it into skilled worker. We can try and fit it into global uh, mobility business. Um, but it, but in fact, um, it's, it's, there's nothing that neatly fits that hole. Um, and it's a big hole for a country that's trying to, you know, that, that's really, you know, trying to power its way out through Brexit. Yeah, absolutely. I think that the replacement routes that were introduced, you flagged at the time, were not going to be fit for purpose. And, and so it has proved. Let's move on. I think if you were to stop someone on the street and do a sort of word association game uh, and said home office, quite a few would say Windrush as a sort of call and response. And um, that scandal broke in April of 2018 in the sense that it was no longer just Amelia Gentleman at The Guardian uh, reporting on it. It was that the whole press weighed in and the home office accepted that there was a big problem. The Windrush team was set up to give long-term residents the documents they needed to prove their legal status. And 15,000 people have now got documents under that Windrush scheme. Here is Labour MP David Lammy speaking in the House of Commons on the 16th of April, 2018. This is a day of national shame. And it has come about because of a hostile environment policy that was begun under her Prime Minister. Let us call it as it is. If you lay down with dogs, you get fleas. And that is what has happened. Colin, I was looking at the Wendy Williams report and it traces this back. It says that the Home Office knew that there was a problem with elderly people from the Caribbean as early as 2006. So long before the hostile environment came in although that exacerbates this. Like, why was it such a slow burn for them to catch on that this was a scandal? In some ways, I think I'd, I'd sort of flip the question and say, you know, why did it become a scandal? Because, you know, as an immigration lawyer, we're so used to really bad things happening to clients and just the sort of overwhelming inhumanity of the bureaucracy and the way that people are treated. And um, you know, sometimes when I'm talking to journalists, um, they... They pick up on things that that don't seem remarkable to me, just because they're they're part of sort of an inherent part of immigration law and practice in a way, and they 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 think they're actually quite um, quite surprising and bad, and it's it's a bit of a wake up call that you get kind of inured in all this. I don't, and in, in terms of what, why it came out so slowly, um, I, yeah, first of all, it's remarkable it came out at all in some ways. Um, part of it's just racism. Um, I think people didn't really care because it was affecting mainly elderly black people and and that just wasn't a a big problem as far as um the home office was concerned as far as the public were concerned as far as the the, most of the media were concerned as well it's also i I think a, a, a bit of an indictment of what's happened to the kind of immigration justice system as well 
and I, I don't want to be too critical of lawyers, although I think we should self-reflect on this, um, because part of it is due to uh, cuts to the legal aid in, in 2012, where uh, immigration, normal immigration cases, basically the sort of the, the technical terms that came out of scope, meaning that there were no, no people no longer qualified for legal aid. So people who were in this position, finding that they didn't have documents that they were entitled to, and therefore they needed to apply to the Home Office, couldn't approach lawyers for help because lawyers were no longer funded. And, you know, in theory, they could have paid privately, but obviously the problem is that you've got no money by that point. So you haven't, you haven't got the money to pay privately and our fees were, were, were simply unrealistic. There were charities who were coming across these kinds of cases on an individual basis, but you know the, the full scope of what was happening um, wasn't known. And it, it, it was a sort of, it seemed like a hypothetical problem that was probably happening, but there weren't that many live cases that, that we were sort of collectively aware of. And then you know, it it emerged due to some, I think, remarkable, um, persistent journalism work by Amelia Gentleman, primarily, um, who who really sort of ran with this. And then just a kind of coincidence of events. It kind of Brexit was part of it. You know, there were quite a lot of immigration stories in the media. This narrative was building up about the Home Office being a, a failing department, mainly because of their treatment of white middle class. European nationals who were being refused these permanent residence documents felt like there was space in the papers for for stories about how bad the Home Office were, which I think helped. And um, yeah, it, it, it kind of just coincided with um, with this big Commonwealth conference as well, which again is just complete coincidence, and it kind of blew up into in, into a big story and led to some very useful short term changes for a limited number of people, which is is very good for them, but not necessarily you know longer term stuff. Yeah, just to carry on with the contemporary events, I suppose, the, the week after this um, sort of weekend where it all came to a head and there was this Commonwealth conference and so on, uh, Home Secretary Amber Rudd spoke to the Home Affairs Committee of MPs. She was asked about home office targets for removing people from the UK. Targets for removals, when were they set? Uh, we don't have targets for removals. If you ask me are the numbers of people we expect to be removed, um, that's not how we operate. Those were the words that ended her career because there were targets for removing people from the UK and Miss Rudd, in what now seems like a quaint adherence to bygone political norms, uh, resigned for misleading the select committee. Uh, since then, we've had Sajid Javid as Home Secretary. Now we have Priti Patel. Both of them have said that the Home Office needs to learn the lessons of Windrush and change its uh, approach, change its policies, change its culture. Is that happening? Has it learned those lessons? No. Next, <laughs> it, yeah, just just no. Um, I, we we can see there have been a few attempts at the Home Office to to make adjustments to things. So they've got this uh, fancy ethical decision making framework and, and and stuff like that. But there's uh, they, they talk about the kind of face behind the case and, and and things. But I don't think we've seen any meaningful change at all. We certainly haven't seen any review of the. What I'm, I'm still going to stick to calling the hostile environment sort of suite of laws, you know, kind of employer checks and landlord checks and so on, um, which which really compounded the problems that that people were having from sort of 2012, 2014 onwards. And um, you know, we, we still see the Home Office driving through policies which adversely affect you know uh, significant numbers of people 
with very little evidence that it, it does any real good for anything. And um, we, we were talking about transparency earlier. You know, it's not a word that you associate with the Home Office. Um, you know, if, if they were talking about meaningful change, I think we'd be looking at a very different institution to, to the one we are today. The major controversy of the last couple of years is asylum seekers arriving across the channel on small boats, which wasn't really a thing five years ago at all. Um, Peter, can you outline the numbers first? When did this small boat trend really begin to take off? Sorry, just to, I, I was going to come in at the end. So I've been doing quite a lot of reading on some of the little historical background stuff. Um, it's really interesting. There were small boat crossings back in the 60s and um, it was Commonwealth migrants. It was British subjects from uh, India, Pakistan, who were rocking up basically on the the south coast. And um, you know, a, a, and new legislation was introduced in 1968 to deal with this small boat crossing issue because that that, that hadn't been criminalised. They they weren't doing anything wrong according to law. There was a big House of Lords case about it. So yeah, you know, I. I Obviously, the mass, the, the sort of significant phenomenon of small boats crossings is, is is new, but there are these kind of historical precedents. If we go back to the sixties, actually, okay, I, I stand corrected then, Colin, with your uh, long historical insight. But as you say, the, the if we if we focus on the recent trend of mass crossings in in the thousands and tens of thousands, um, Peter, can you outline for us when that sort of took off in earnest? So yes, uh, the issue really came to public prominence at the end of 2018. Uh, and that was after 250 people were detected uh, making that journey in November and December. And you'll recall that led to the phenomenon being declared a major incident by Sajid Javid, who was then Home Secretary. But in the whole of 2018, there were fewer than 300 detected arrivals. And in the following years, the annual numbers did rise quite considerably, so reaching about 1,800 in 2019, 8,500 in 2020, and then last year, about 28,500. Now, this year, there's been around 15,000 small boat arrivals so far, which is about 50% higher than in the same period Last year, and we've seen predictions that we might see 60,000 people arriving by small boat this year. Um, will that materialize? Well, at the Migration Observatory, we tend not to make uh, predictions, especially about the future. Uh, so I think we'll just have to wait and see. I would not be surprised if it exceeded last year's number, uh, but 60,000, I would be quite surprised if it reached that high. Has there been an overall increase in irregular journeys across the channel, though? Or is this, are, are the people in boats being um, diverted from other routes like lorries and things like that with, with greater security around uh, Calais and, and other ports? Mm, great question. So before 2021, there doesn't appear to have been an overall increase in irregular entries, but rather, as you suggest, a change in method. Uh, but this has changed in 2021, because in 2021, we saw the total number of detected irregular arrivals more than double uh, from the year before, so to about 37,000. And that increase was driven almost entirely by small boat arrivals rather than people traveling and entering by other irregular routes like road, rail, and air. Those remained largely constant 
but the boat arrivals actually drove an, a total global increase in irregular entries. Yeah, it's really caught on and the Home Office uh, primary policy solution is the idea of threatening people with removal to Rwanda as a deterrent. The Home Affairs Committee has put out a report this week and said there is no evidence that this will in fact be a deterrent. What's your assessment? Well, it's true that there's little evidence, Um, although it should be said, it was always just from a data and statistical perspective, going to be difficult to prove uh, the deterrent uh, impact of the Rwanda policy, because even if boat arrivals go down, uh, we wouldn't know how much of the decline, uh, if any, uh, were due to the Rwanda policy, because boat arrivals fluctuate all the time for all sorts of reasons, due to enforcement activity, geopolitical events affecting refugee flows, weather, you know, and so on and so forth. Um, With that said, I mean, there's a pretty plausible argument, at least to me, that the policy won't have a definitive uh, impact on uh, numbers. The report that you just mentioned suggests that channel crossers uh, perhaps don't have a detailed knowledge of the Rwanda policy, and that is consistent with other research on why people claim asylum in particular countries. Uh, An assessment, uh, still less a comparative assessment of immigration and asylum policy there against other countries is not a big driving factor. Uh, But then, you know, for even those who are well-informed and who do know about the policy, um, they may appreciate that not many people appear to be, uh, will be sent to Rwanda. Um, I mean, we've heard numbers, maybe a few, few hundred a year, but if small boat arrivals continue in the tens of thousands, that suggests that the probability of anyone uh, arriving in the UK by that means being sent to Rwanda is pretty low. And so it may just be that for those who are informed, that's just one more risk and not a particularly great risk to consider alongside the other risks that they're taking in making that dangerous journey. Yeah, I think what we've seen in the past few years is that the Home Office has found it remarkably difficult to remove anyone from the country, even if that person has no uh, permission to be in the UK and you are sending them back to their home country. The, the number of flights of you know affecting those removals is has crashed. Um, and the idea that they would be able to increase that significantly when you're talking about sending people to Rwanda where they've never been and they have not had any chance to apply for asylum seems to me very ambitious. Colin, if Rwanda doesn't have this deterrent effect, like what's going to happen with channel crossings? Is it Are we just going to have tens of thousands of people crossing by boat indefinitely? Is that just sort of the new normal? It, it doesn't feel very sustainable. I, it, it's just nobody wants thousands of people crossing the channel in small boats. And I, th- I think it should be said that the um, the authorities, you know, the RNLI, the Home Office, the Navy have been doing remarkable work um, ensuring that you know very few people have have drowned. There have been some tragedies, but there've been surprisingly few, uh, really. Um, but um, it, it just doesn't feel sustainable. So I kind of expect that you know if there is another um, tragedy, which which seems inevitable. Um, there'll be more pressure on both the British and French governments to come to some sort of arrangement. We might start seeing some sort of you know, quick returns to France or something like that, which might address the issue. But um, you know, that does depend on on an arrangement with the French, because as, as Peter's been saying, you know, removing a few hundred people to Rwanda or you know a few more hundred 
to another country that you know the, there's a deal with Rwanda so far there may be other deals in in future if another home secretary or pretty Patel remains in post we don't know what's going on with the you know the government at the moment but um you know that that doesn't feel like a very likely policy solution to all of this I mean, even if it even if it were possible and and so on and it's of course it's not what happened in Australia. You know, the government likes to point to Australia as the precedent for this, where allegedly it's it's been a successful policy in that the numbers were reduced. But actually, what's happened in Australia is you intercept people at sea and take them back. You, you don't allow them to reach Australia and then put them on a flight to a third country. It's about kind of interception in the vast ocean surrounding that country with the agreement of adjacent countries. So those kind of elements of the uh, essential elements of the Australian um, approach just are lacking at the moment. And it's like the, the, the British government is pretending that it can do the same sort of thing anyway without those essential ingredients. Let's wrap up with some predictions, despite Peter's reluctance. Uh, what do we think will happen in the next five years in terms of these themes and trends we've talked about? The Just this week, actually, the Home Office has published a plan for digital borders in the next few years. Uh, some people will be able to just walk in without seeing an immigration officer or even scan their paperwork, sort of automated immigration control. So that's pretty cool. Uh, Nicola, is that the kind of thing you're looking forward to in the next few years? You mentioned digitization is a big theme, or uh, what do you think is going to be big in immigration in the 2020s? Uh, am I looking forward to it or not? I mean, as, as a, a, a law firm owner, one doesn't look forward to anything that makes uh, things more uh, potentially e- efficient um, to some extent. Um, although um, I think for me, the main concern is going to be the, the, the paper that they've put out, Legal Migration and Border Control, which is one of a flurry of papers this week, seems to push the, 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 the sponsor system, the sponsor management system uh, needs a pretty, has always since day one needed an urgent overhaul um, because, uh, you you know, we've got a client at the moment whose um, mother is seriously ill. Um, she's the level one user for the business. We're trying to get on so we can be the level one users, et cetera, et cetera. And, you know, hassling her during that time so that she can appoint us um, or issue cause is just ridiculous um and and yet you know we it's at least five days away from us being able to get on there if we can use the home office's priority system and you know those sorts of things updating business addresses paye numbers things like that you know these things take 18 weeks sometimes for the home office to approve an application uh to do that when this should all be seamless so i think for me that the, the sponsor management system needs to be streamlined to become more efficient Obviously, the more people who come through the system, the better for the people. But what that means, though, and this comes back to my main concerns, is where you have a system that's a, a green lighting, lots and lots of people, but then flagging up others. What are those flags? You know, once you get a record, an adverse entry onto a database relating to immigration, that can have not only effects in the UK, but across you know other diff- other territories as well. Um, and, and getting out of that, you know, getting to the root of what's going to cause those issues is is of concern. Because as always with the Home Office, you know, there's, there's obviously the serious concerns um, where, you know, if somebody's involved in international terrorism, et cetera, trafficking, then clearly those are things that we'd all be concerned about. My bigger concern is, you know, you've got a, a skilled worker who, through no fault of their own, wasn't paid the right amount of money when they were working 
is that going to be a black mark? You have somebody who has, um, you know, not filed a domestic um, a domestic uh, violence application because they were too fearful to do so, and perhaps therefore overstayed a spouse visa. Is that going to be? A, there's all these black marks that arise from situations which, you know, either are completely innocent or understandable when actually you've got a human being. Uh, a reasonable human being assessing that. So I think for me, those are the main um, concerns. More, more efficiency can't be, you know, can't ever be a bad thing as long as it's done right. And they're all always concerned about the Home Office's technological capabilities, um, shall we say. So efficiency, but not rigid inflexibility is what we're hoping for. Peter? I'm going to resist making any concrete predictions about numbers, uh, even though that's very much my bag, uh, lest I get egg on my face. If we look at the debate, I imagine for the time being, we're going to see a continued focus on this dichotomy of the good and bad migrant. Um, Although we may see a return to a debate focusing more on numbers, if uh, when we get new immigration statistics, they suggest record highs. Um, But until then, I would submit that the main policy areas of focus will continue to be channel migration and asylum. And it's going to be very interesting to see uh, whether the Home Office can pull its finger out uh, on those uh, quite challenging uh, policy areas. No comment. Colin? So I've got conflicting thoughts on this. I I suspect really what we're going to see is just continuity. It'll be more of the same, probably, um, yeah, the asylum system has been as it is since the late 90s, early 2000s, and it seems unlikely to shift fundamentally. Um, the immigration system is, is sort of, there's, there's a lot of continuity in in business and work immigration. You know, the, the categories go back to, I think, the 70s, 80s, you know, things like the businessman visa predates the entrepreneur visa and so on. So, you know, we, 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 we do have a lot of continuity over, over time. And of course, as, as lawyers... And, and as bloggers, we get a bit obsessed with changes to the detail, which are important on a day-to-day basis. But actually, you know, the, as you were saying earlier, the architecture of the system is, is broadly consistent. One of the things I do wonder about is, is what's going to happen with what the government sometimes called low-skilled migration, what they really mean is low-paid migration. And you know, the, the, there were a lot of migrants coming in from EU countries under the free movement system um, to pick strawberries and do construction work and so on. And there's no real sign that that source of labour is being replaced by some other international source. I mean, there were quite a few Ukrainians coming in under the, the seasonal agricultural worker scheme and that stopped. Or there's not much sign of those things being mechanised. You know, are we just going to do different stuff? We're we not going to build buildings. Are we not going to pick strawberries? Are we going to just grow something else or, or, or whatever? I, I, I don't really know. that, And that, that's quite an interesting um, thing to keep an eye on. What I'd like to happen, which isn't likely to happen, <laughs> is, is that we start being a bit more realistic about migrants and immigration and treat migrants with a bit more humanity basically and the you know the idea that people who come here are going to stay and they should be treated as long-term members of society from the start you know once they're here treat them with respect stop subjecting them to this awful bureaucracy that that they face that we sometimes forget about because we're dealing with it day to day we can't sort of see the wood for the trees sometimes 
and, and help them help them settle in. And, and that's just good for them, but it's, it's good for all of us as well. And you can see that with the asylum system. You know, these people are genuine refugees, but you see it with economic migration and with students and so on as well. So that's what I'd like to happen. But um, and, and I suppose you know, to, to try and end on an optimistic note, concern about immigration has plummeted really since the Brexit vote in 2016. And it's remained remarkably low considering the media coverage of small boat crossings and so on. That hasn't really caused an uptick. Now, a, a pessimistic view might be that people have got really serious stuff to worry about at the moment, like new Cold War or, or, or you know, massive cost of living crisis. Um, but but you know, at the moment, immigration doesn't seem to be a major public concern. And therefore, maybe there is some space to talk about these things and think about these things in a more realistic and, and, and humane way. Yeah, that takes us back to the theme that uh, Peter mentioned at the outset, uh, that you have had this trend of lower public concern about immigration and higher uh, numbers of people believing that migration is positive for the country. I think so far what we've seen is the government using that space to uh, allow in more of what we described as the the good migrants, right? The Ukrainians, uh, the Hong Kongers, rather than going for wholesale reform um, and treating migrants across the board in a more, as you put it, con humane way. Thanks, everyone. That was Nicola Carter from Carter Thomas Solicitors, Peter William Walsh from Oxford University's Migration Observatory, and Colin from Free Movement. I'm CJ McKinney, and today is my last day as Free Movement Editor. As a result, these podcasts may be a little less regular over the next couple of months, but Colin's hoping to have a new editor in place after this summer. Until then, thanks for listening.